1420, in the town of Wakefield on the island of Great Britain, a play was recorded in a manual of scripts for the local Corpus Christi pageant. The play has come to be known as the Second Shepherd's Pageant and marks, arguably, the first ever British comedy. The play's significance is considerable. Not only do we see a sophisticated plot structure that had been absent in medieval drama, we see the play notifying us of the fundamental changes that modernity is going to bring to the world. It's important for contemporary analysis as the modern era comes to a close. And I, Stuart Parker, and Dan Jennison, our interviewer, will be talking about this play in a total of seven segments, explaining the rise of modernity and the forces that are beginning to tear at its edges. For the past several episodes, Dan and I have talked about how Wakefield in the 1420s was the harbinger of so much of modernity, so many of the forces that we associate with capitalism and the Enlightenment. However, today we live at the end of the Age of Reason. The Enlightenment is over, and now we have to ask what kinds of thinking will succeed our own. Here again, we find the Second Shepherd's Pageant a surprisingly useful play in looking both backwards and forwards to the distant past and to the world beyond modernity when we think about consciousness of time. In 2012, I was at the American Historical Association annual convention that's attended by 11,000 people. And I was on a panel with um, the highly prestigious scholars, Jorge Cañazares Esquera, historian of science of the Spanish world, and Ken Mills and Joe Spencer, and um, talking about time consciousness. So three people came to that panel out of 11,000. And that should sort of give you a wow. sense of the profound inattention paid to the stuff that we're gonna talk about. A lot of the work that I'm trying to do now is to make people realize that time consciousness is affecting things. It's hard for people to uh, appreciate that there can be a different consciousness of time. That's right. And it's something that is so, so invisible by being so uh, omnipresent in our lives. It's hard to imagine the water that we, that we swim in, um, and it's therefore hard to detect. Yes, um, but what's interesting is that whereas other core cultural assumptions are challenged by vibrant social movements, whether you have people challenging white supremacy, albeit problematically, I feel like this is something that's even deeper down. The mm -hmm. idea that people can't experience time another way. 
it's an interesting sort of absence in our pluralism. And you'll notice that we live in the age of the clock, right? If there's one thing we're convinced is an intersubjective experience that's totally coercive, it's what time it is. And that's only intensified in the time that we've been alive. Nobody can have an argument about what time it is anymore, even. Mm -hmm. And this idea that we're all experiencing the same time the same way the way that's that sort of come upon us has rapidly reordered us and very few social movements have resisted it or remarked on it or criticized it in in ways that almost every other change as hegemonic as it has been has provoked some kind of criticism that there's been some kind of major institution, you know, like the Roman Catholic Church standing up against eugenics, or mm -hmm. that we see, you know, you see things like the Sanders movement standing up against this intensification and naturalization of class, that these things are evoked. But it appears that when human beings change their ideas about time, it's just, we turn on a dime and we don't notice. Now, of course, I've spent a lot of my time studying Mormons, and they're pretty much the only social movement I've encountered that is resistant to modern time consciousness, but that resistance is inchoate. You know, there, there, are, um, there are different ways of uh, developing one's psychology. When you read into that, there are ways, I think, in which people are, in fact, experiencing time quite differently, um, but uh, without the consciousness of it. For example, there are people that um, don't develop a great capacity for object constancy. And uh, for them, whatever is now has always been and always will be uh, until it changes. And then that new condition is, has always been and always will be, for example. This is very helpful because it takes us right into the consciousness that we're addressing in Second Shepherd's pageant mm -hmm. and the consciousness that's emerging to resist our current time consciousness, which is, of course, highly sequential, highly terminal. And really, our time consciousness is new. Our time consciousness is railway time. Railway time changed the world because it changed time from being objective to intersubjective. Time was the location of the sun in the sky in a day until the arrival of railway time. So every village, every place in the world looked at the sun and saw it at its zenith at noon, and that was noon where you lived. But of course, with the rise of the railways in the 19th century and the need to publish railway schedules, this was impossible. And so time changed on people. We moved to time zones, and it didn't matter whether the sun was overhead at noon. The way you knew time was that time was a social agreement about what time it was in your zone. It was no longer directly linked to the physical environment in which you lived. You could no longer adduce what time it was by observing the world wherever you were. Now, that's, that's a huge shift. I mean, we might think that all this precision of like using the satellites and whatever to tell us what time it is, is a way that time is getting more objective, more directly derived from the physical world. But in fact, the precise opposite is true. 
we're using satellites to make time even more intersubjective, to make the agreement about what time it is in your zone even more hegemonic. Not because of where the sun is, but based on the level of social agreement that that's what time it is that's then policed through your computer and all of these devices that are not there to communicate information about the location of the sun. They're there to communicate information about what time other people think it is. Yeah. And this really uh, to me is, is just further evidence of the, um, the, the totalizing hegemonic nature of, uh, of industrialization and capitalism. I mean, this is, this is literally the, the advent of industrial capitalism that's bringing this, this change in how we, how we perceive and order our, our consciousness uh, of our experience. The impact of railway time is to create factory time. That it doesn't matter how much you produce in a day. It doesn't matter how many hours you work in a day. What matters is... Are you part of the consensus about when eight o'clock is? Are you part of the consensus about when five o'clock is? That our whole work discipline system radiates out from the creation of railway time. So while time has been modernizing and becoming more hegemonic, the advent of the railway accelerates this phenomenon and it turns time into a socially produced thing in which we live that uses technology not to discern what, what time it is, but to enforce what time it is. The, the discourse is just so entirely uh, overwhelmingly dominant that we don't actually understand that it's a discourse that we're all agreeing on, that we're all uh, ascribing to. <clears throat> right. So, so the kind of time that exists in Second Shepherd's Pageant is the kind of time that's coming back. The railway time of the Enlightenment is losing right now, not in the sense of work discipline and the neoliberal order, not in the sense of plane schedules, but in terms of the subjective experience of the difference between past and present. And that's what you were getting at with object permanence. Object permanence is a different part of our temporal phenomenology. And this idea that if, if something is true now, in order for it to be true now, it must always have been true. If something is false now, it must always have been false. That change over time is a hard thing to negotiate. Now, generally, the way we negotiate rapid change in time is through a process we call neo-traditionalism. And this we see in the Donald Trump movement. Make America great again is a classic neo-traditionalist phrase because what neo-traditionalism does is it permits a society that is fearful of change to change very rapidly by telling that society that it is either not changing, resisting change, or returning to a past, usually a past that never existed. So if you want people to change fast, making them love change is less efficient and has less breadth than telling them they are returning to an idealized past. So Donald Trump's movement is engaged in profound changes in our physical environment, in our labor discipline regimes, in our theories of respect, in our theories of everything. And the way that so many people are able to embrace is that their fear of change is the force that's being used to make them change. 
So neo-traditionalism is a force, and it's interesting because neo-traditionalism is neither good nor bad. It has been the primary strategy of indigenous people in North America to survive the massive changes they've had to undergo, to constantly retroject the present into the past and make sure that every adaptation they have to engage in is actually a return to the past, a return to an authentic indigeneity. It's easy to sort of point fingers when it's the Trump movement, but the reality is that there are all kinds of social movements some of which we are allied with, some of which we oppose, that use neo-traditionalism as a discursive strategy. And that goes back uh, all the way. I mean, there's, there's on the record in, in antiquity and in, uh, in you know, ancient Athens, they were talking about uh, bygone golden ages that they aspired to return to and, and whatnot. This is a, an age-old uh, trick here. Yes, nostalgia is a powerful force in all mm. of us. It's your non-pathological object permanence obsession that we all, we all use the past as a refuge. So neo-traditionalism can only get you so far. But the next thing you do to cushion the blow of rapid change is to attack the past as a dialectical structure. You're talking like like Khmer Rouge style stuff? well, we're getting to the Khmer Rouge. Uh, okay. I mean, the, I mean, remember the Khmer Rouge, their redefinition of revolution is return to the past. Mm-hmm. Pol Pot was saying, make Cambodia great again. That's the central message of the Khmer Rouge. Make Cambodia great again. Smash everybody's glasses, smash the radios, dump dissidents into mass graves, and burn books. But what we see with Pol Pot is that the discourse is not enough. The project of accelerating change is intimately linked to the destruction of social memory. If you're trying to force a civilization through change, the most dangerous thing is someone who remembers the past. Similarly, if you're trying to stay in control, the most dangerous thing is a person who remembers the past. I mean, Brian Fawcett in Cambodia is exactly right when he he suggests that in order to imagine a different future, you have to be able to remember a different past. And I think this explains the current generation of leaders on the socialist left globally, right? That your socialist leader in Vancouver is 70-something-year-old Jean Swanson, who made her first run for mayor in 1984, that the leader of, you know, the greatest hope we had for British labor, Jeremy Corbyn, old, old man who had been in office for an insanely long time, just like Bernie Sanders, Mm. that what we see with these old folks is that they have become subversive simply by remembering, simply by knowing that a past existed that is different from the present. And so when we start seeing the violence of a regime like Pol Pot's, it's because they need something stronger than a mere discourse, than a mere make America great again, to truly, truly destroy uh, the memory of the past. And the way that happens is by a frontal assault on the very dialectic that the term the past implies. 
I'm sure that we made the term the past before we made the term the present because the past implies a present. The past is a nonsense category if there is no present. And so when we talk about the past or when we talked about the past in the enlightenment episteme, when we talked about the past in the vanishing age of reason, it was clear what we were using it to do. We were comparing it to the present, either in order to find the past wanting or in order to find the present wanting. So back then, a progressive sort would use an anecdote from the past to show that the present was better and that we were on an upward trajectory that predicted a future that would be better still. Here we have, instead of saying female genital mutilation is bad, we go female genital mutilation is from the past. In the present, we don't do that anymore. And in the future, we won't even circumcise boys. And we're on this upward trajectory. And the difference between past and present, the way in which the past is, uh, we can see that upward trajectory through that comparison. Conservatives during the age of reason might do the same thing, but in the reverse order. Uh, an evangelical conservative might compare high divorce rates, promiscuity, things like that, to the early days of the church, to the continence and decency of the church fathers. A Jewish traditionalist might compare the, the rigorous diet described in the Bible to people's laxity at keeping kosher in the present. So whether you were a conservative, whether you were a progressive, whatever sort of creature you were, in the age of reason, you're, when you talked about history, when you made arguments about the past, it was in order to create an implied criticism of the present that we were either, we had either lost the lessons and wisdom of the past, or we still had yet to fully embrace how much better things could be. Yeah, that's really given away in, in the way that the past is used as a pejorative, you know, uh, you're so antiquated, he's a dinosaur, that's so uh, old-fashioned, etc. And in this discourse, the future is, is seen as, as hopeful, as positive, as optimistic, as shining, etc. Yes, and, and progressive discourse is dying. And the reason it's dying is it's not up against a conservative discourse that criticizes the present using the past. That's the evangelicals of 10 years ago. But an interesting social process began in 2009. A process an, an, a, a man who died in obscurity worked his whole life for. Willard Cleon Skousen. Willard Cleon Skousen was a Canadian, Cardston, Alberta, Mormon, as in descended from the Mormons, who were hoodwinked by Wilfrid Laurier and Clifford Sifton into thinking they'd actually get to be polygamous, so they moved north. <laughs> That's the history of the Cardston Temple, one of the early instances of your classic Canadian pluralism bait-and-switch. Skousen, being part of the larger Mormon world, became an FBI agent in Hoover's original FBI, but was found to be too paranoid and obsessed with communism to fit in. Skousen then became the police chief of Salt Lake City, but was found to be too puritanical to fit in as 
a Utah police chief. Skousen then went on to become a professor of history at Brigham Young University, but was found to be too promiscuous and dishonest in his handling of historical evidence to fit in as a historian at BYU in the 60s. Um, Just at a time when the Mormon church was, was buying for, uh, fraudulent documents that supposedly disproved the, their Bible. Uh, th- yes. That's, that, that's how fast and loose they were with the facts, and this guy was too, too much so. Okay. Yes. And, I mean, like in Skousen's history books, unlike other Mormons, he knew that the city of Enoch had occupied the area that is currently the Gulf of Mexico. He knew that it now orbited the planet Neptune, and he knew that all angels were extraterrestrials from a moon of Neptune. There's a specificity and a confidence with which Skousen spoke that was problematic. But Skousen always believed that the way that Mormonism would win would be through the creation of a broad anti-communist, politically conservative alliance on an issue basis between Mormons and evangelicals. And Skousen spent his whole career doing that. He was only successful with the Moonies in Korea. Reverend Moon did make common cause with Skousen. But until very recently, American evangelicals had no interest in this project. They had no interest in forming a broader theological political front with Mormons. In fact, when I went to the Hill Kumora pageant, uh, a key part of the Mormon pilgrimage trail in New York State, less than 10 years ago, there was a phalanx of evangelicals protesting the event with wonderful signs like, you've got the wrong Jesus, and repent your phony repentance. But in fact, the forces that are going to take that picket line down in the past 10 years had already been unleashed in 2009, even before I went to the Hill Kumara pageant. Glenn Beck, who converted to Mormonism, but whose Fox News show was watched almost exclusively by evangelicals, saw the works of Skousen as a blueprint for infusing into evangelical thought fundamental Mormon concepts. And so Beck republished Skousen's book, The 5,000-Year Leap, which is a totally insane book. It begins where Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he's handed two documents by God, the Decalogue and the American Constitution. He goes down Mount Sinai. He is elected president of Israel. Aaron is elected as his vice president. And Israel runs under the American Constitution until about 300 years later, its, uh, its citizens become involved in sodomy and miscegenation. So God turns their skin brown, but sends the true white Israelites to the Ukraine, uh, where they reestablish the American Constitution and live in peace and harmony until the Norse god Odin shows up. Odin then leads them to Saxony, where they reestablished the American Constitution and from thence invade Britain. So, in fact, Alfred the Great, King of the English, was their elected president, and they lived under the American Constitution until 1066 in the, Mor- the Norman Conquest. Now, you would think that that's pretty fucking out there, 
especially because later in the book, Skousen explains that not only is Joseph Smith a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, but that um, George Washington is a direct lineal descendant of the Norse god Odin. So this is an amazing text. What happened? Well, after it was popularized by Glenn Beck, Rick Perry, the governor of Texas and two-time Republican presidential candidate, energy secretary of Donald Trump, the guy who got into politics as George W. Bush's lieutenant governor candidate because they needed somebody to stand next to Bush to make him look intelligent and sophisticated. So Rick Perry, proprietor of the Niggerhead Ranch, becomes governor of Texas. And he hears Glenn Beck and he decides that you know how Texas has one of the two main textbook buying authorities in America? That either you buy, if you're a school system, you buy your textbooks through California or through Texas. These two state governments have huge control over American pedagogy. So if your books are chosen in Texas or your ideology is chosen in Texas, every red state uses that as the basis of its textbook acquisition. So that, ex- Rick, that explains why the, uh, the JFK assassination involves a book depository. So, um, so Rick Perry goes, I believe that the 5,000-year leap is the truest work ever written. He has no idea it's Mormon. He believes it is the most accurate work of history of all time. And in particular, it's because when the Declaration of Independence is signed, Jesus shows up to co-sign it. And you may recall that there is a piece of what we think of now as evangelical art of Jesus co-signing the Declaration of Independence with all of the founding fathers there. It's, of course, a work of Mormon art that has now become part of evangelical consciousness. So, and so Rick Perry, Mitt Romney, and various other folks in the Republican complex, most of whom are not Mormons, agree that Cleon Skousen has figured out the, the, the structure of human history. And, and so the teaching of history in over half of the states in America is based on the 5,000-year leap. And textbooks have been ordered and modified in order to include features of the 5,000-year leap, like the, like the false idea that Thomas Jefferson was an evangelical religious fanatic. This is part of this great Skousen success of transmitting Mormon time consciousness into larger evangelical culture. And this has changed evangelicals. The reason they seem different to you on social media than they did 10 years ago is because their consciousness has been restructured in those 10 years. And a central feature of it is the new time consciousness. So what is this new time consciousness? Well, let's go back to the play. In the play, you'll write one of the things that we love about the second shepherd's pageant is that the shepherds use precise and politically sophisticated language to talk about the emerging material conditions under enclosure. So the fact that everybody's land is being taken by sheep is they're remarking on that because that's a new thing and they're going, holy shit, look at this. They're precise about the new forms of land tenure and the new kinds of powerful people who are making that possible. 
They don't say the lords, which would be an ambiguous term. They don't say the barons, which would be an incorrect term. They don't say the earls, which would be an incorrect term. They talk about the gentlemen in that they understand that what's going on is that the property is now owned in fee simple title and not as in alienated uh, crown title the way aristocratic land would be held. And so we're struck throughout Second Shepherd's pageant of how up to the minute, how precise they are, <clears throat> how they're describing an England that's different than in England 70 or 100 or 150 years ago. They're so precisely describing these new things that have just begun happening. And then what happens at the end of the play? The Archangel Gabriel appears and asks them to, to attend the birth of Christ. And this lets all of the air out of the argument. Because what this means is that enclosure has always been going on. And not only, is, not only has it always been going on, it's always been going on everywhere. That it posits that Wakefield in 1420 is indistinguishable from Palestine in the year zero. And of course we see this all through medieval art. In medieval art, medieval art always shows us an all now consciousness that however people are dressed today is how they've always been dressed. However people talk today is how they've always talked. And it's not just an all now consciousness, it's an all here consciousness. All times and places are essentially the same. That's why when you go to heaven in Mormonism, you still have a job, you still mow your lawn. Um, you mentioned an observation you had that, that people tend to, to measure time with space and space with time. And what's going on in this, in this play where they're reordering time consciousness, the parade itself is a, is a reordering of the spatial element. Yes, well, I mean, I think, per, I think a, a hegemonic parade culture requires an all now, all here consciousness. Yes, that the, there is a single experience and we're all having it and we're all there when we remember how um, people who've experienced uh, FASD are especially affected by parades, right? That why is that? Well, because they are closer to an all here, all now consciousness. Anyway, this was discovered by Mark Leone, um, a very strange anthropologist in 1978. Most people who work on Mormonism become obsessed with it and work on it their whole career. Mark Leone is just much more interested in Arlington Cemetery than he is in Mormonism and in a variety of other completely unconnected things. But Leone went to Utah in the 70s when Mormon culture was further away from mainstream culture. And he observed Mormon testimony meetings and Mormon testimony meetings are much more like Alcoholics Anonymous meetings than they are like church services. In that a person stands up and talks until they've solved their own problem and then they sit down. And so in a Mormon testimony meeting, you have to say that this proves the church is true. But it's all filler until then. You're telling the aristocrats until then. Uh. You can say whatever you want as long as you end with, and this is why I know the church is true. And it's called the aristocrat. So what people will do is they'll explain 
that there's a problem and they've solved it. And consistently what Leon noticed was that people would talk about a situation in their lives and then they would talk about how something exactly like that happened in Mormon scripture. And they just have to do what happened then, that God talked to them and explained that this is just like the other thing. And this is the main intellectual work you do in Mormon temporal phenomenology. You are always trying to make past and present identical. You have to shave off every possible difference and show that it wasn't there. That's why in Cleon Skousen's most ambitious book, it begins with Adam and Eve arriving in their spaceship from the planet Kolob in present-day Kansas City, and Adam immediately building the same pipe organ that Brigham Young will build 6,000 years later in the Mormon tabernacle. I mean, the greatest Mormon theologian of the 20th century, somebody who's to be taken far more seriously than what I'm about to say will make him sound, but essentially, uh, Hugh Nibley used the Greek concept of the eon from Greek Gnosticism to argue that the universe is just a set of eons, that all of space-time is a set of adjacent eons, and each of them is identical. That every inhabited planet in the world is just like this, and every inhabited planet since the beginning of time has been just like this, and everything in the future will be just like this. This idea that what makes Mormons feel secure is the most extreme form of object permanence, where nothing ever changes, that that's your reward in heaven, is that the present is captured in amber. And this has been the mainstream time consciousness, that one of the things that makes the Enlightenment exceptional is the way it resolves the past-present dialectic by focusing on dissimilarity rather than similarity. And so one of the things that's so troubling about the Second Shepherd's pageant is that it appears to be pointing forward in time towards our aid in all these ways that it seems so prescient that it has a style of dialogue you won't see written anywhere else for another 130 years, that it describes a system of material relations that won't become hegemonic for another 200 years, that it describes a mode of industrial production that's brand new, that's less than a generation old. It does all of these things culturally, economically, and then it ends with this invocation of the medieval time consciousness where the distance between past and present collapses. And of course, when I began studying this play 15 years ago, I thought that was a contradiction, that that was the part of the play that pointed backwards instead of forwards. Because when I began studying this play, it was five years before Glenn Beck popularized the 5,000-year leap. And I now understand that the last scene in the play is not the least prescient, but the most, that it reaches the furthest forward in time, that this consciousness of all now, all the same, all here, that this was coming back, and it was coming back stronger than it had ever previously existed.
this type of time consciousness benefits those who now currently benefit from the status quo because it makes it obviously much more difficult to to change if one doesn't have a consciousness of a, of a potential for change. Um, and we can see this in some cases on the left right now. You were men- mentioning leading socialist figures earlier on in our discussion. And one of the fascinating things I'm seeing um, among the, the left right now is, uh, at least uh, elements of the left, is uh, regarding Chomsky as a liberal uh, based on on a few of his analyses. I mean, that's so ridiculous as to not be taken seriously, but I think it shows where different people are at in, in this with this time consciousness. What's interesting in the attacks on Chomsky is that this is classic all now consciousness because suppose we were different kinds of leftists and thought that putting one's signature near the that of the author of Harry Potter was some kind of catastrophe. Supposing we were those kinds of people, what we would have said 10 years ago is, You know, Chomsky used to be good, but in his old age, he's really fallen in just with the other elders of the American state. Mm -hmm. And that's a natural process that happens to many great intellectuals and leaders as they age. We might have compared him to Joe Lewis. We might have compared him to James Clyburn and said, yes, there's a natural declension towards the mainstream, and that's why we shouldn't listen to Chomsky now. But that's not what we hear, right? The criticism is Chomsky has always been a liberal. Chomsky has never been on our side. They don't have the capacity to see Chomsky as changing over time. Everyone on the left, according to our current call-out culture, has a true essence, which is either good or evil. And all we have to do is ferret out what their true essence is. And then not only can we exclude them as members of our coalition, we can exclude all of their thoughts because somehow their ideas become tainted by their relationship with evil or impurity. That's a good point that the Chomsky uh, is a liberal means they actually, some of them specifically uh, suggest that he's always been a liberal. That's, that's a specific claim being made. Yes, and it's an important claim because their, ontolo- their theories of ontology, their theories of epistemology rely on a discourse of timelessness. One of, the f- one of the few ways that I would say the left distinguishes itself from the right, both the left and the right are becoming increasingly identitarian. Both the left and the right are increasingly interested in some kind of intention-based eternal soul unconnected to the body that is who you really are. Unconnected to the body's behavior as well, which is important on the right. Right. If I say stupid things all day, I'm not stupid. On the left, it's a different it's a different disconnect from the body. But in both cases, the body, its actions are actually separate from this inalterable eternal character that is either tainted or untainted in this purity politics. And so that is different between left and right. Discourses of eternal purity are left discourses today because the right is powered by the discourse of conversion. That's why the right is winning, not because their tent is bigger, but because their tent has a greeter. There's someone to welcome you into the tent so that even if history can't change, the right actually now has a better handle on the capacity for change over time 
because its theory of your identity is built not on the discovery of an original self, but on a conversion experience that the right narrates for you. So one of the reasons you want to know, like, why might regular folks join the Trump movement instead of the DSA? An answer to that is, even if they're good people, the DSA, even if it doesn't believe this ideologically, has a membership base that is far more subject to the idea of an original purity and an inalterable self. That means it has less of a handle on understanding time or understanding the nature of revolution and the like because the right, by embedding conversion in its theory, is actually preserving more of the Enlightenment time consciousness than the left is. The right's uh, tent with the greeter, <laughs> as you put it, um, it features redeemability in the form of conversion. Um, the left's tent uh, is... is if you, are, if you don't have the pure uh, essence or the right essence or whatever, you are irredeemable. Um, That's right. And, the yeah. only way you can come back on the left is if it's revealed that there was an inaccuracy in your original condemnation. There's no yeah. idea that there is something inside you that can change. The way that you're describing all, all here, all now time consciousness, the way that uh, one of the obvious questions about that is, well, how do they deal with death? Because death is a pretty stark and obvious change. And you mentioned that, you know, in the Mormon culture, uh, their eternal uh, afterlife resembles uh, the, the all here, all now. That, that seems to have an interesting, perhaps important implication on uh, the quote, uh, normally attributed to Zizek, but it was, it's actually somebody else about, uh, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. American particularism around the afterlife precedes the Mormons uh, in an interesting way. It's actually one of the most important features of the Southern white evangelical identity. America is very profoundly ambivalent about slavery when it, its revolution happens. And it grows only more ambivalent initially. So they agree to stop importing slaves. And then you see that this opposition to slavery is big, but it starts slackening in the American South. The American South is originally a society that's split about slavery. And the emergence of the pro-slavery consensus is driven by two events. First of all, the arrival of cotton, which is vastly more profitable than tobacco or indigo or rice. The second is the arrival of the Methodist circuit riders. The Methodists come to the South and initially planters welcome the Methodist circuit riders to preach to the slaves. And this backfires. The planters believe that teaching the slaves Christianity will make them more docile. And they very quickly realize that ideas about universal human worth, ideas about universal human freedom, ideas about universal salvation are making their slaves more restive and destabilizing their society. So the Northern Methodists are locked out of the South. And what happens in the inauguration of what we call the antebellum period, the period of American history where the march to civil war is inevitable, the South changes dramatically. It's well depicted in the film Django Unchained, brilliantly so, because the Southern planters stop seeing themselves as gentlemen and start seeing themselves as earls and barons. They start seeing themselves as aristocrats. 
because they're trying to sever their tradition from the North and from American capitalism, which they also see as bad. So they create a parochial theory of social status. They create a parochial theory of rights. It's only in the antebellum period that the South begins arguing slavery as a positive good rather than a necessary evil. That's a big shift. So political theory shifts, discourse shifts, custom shifts. The fourth element is the problem they're trying to solve is that people in the North are preaching Christianity and they need a new Christianity that speaks just to the South. So all these denominations in America, like the Baptists, split between North and South during the lead up to the war. One of the most important features, and I would say one of the single most insidious in naturalizing slavery, in the efforts to naturalize race and naturalize race-based slavery, one of the most important questions that was not just answered, but repeatedly asked, because the act of making someone answer the question for themselves is what's hegemonic about it, but to not just answer, but to ask, how will your slaves serve you in heaven? If you want to see a question that just radiates the defense of a hegemony under attack, it's, it's, it's that. It's, when did you know? When did you first know you were non-binary? And you retroject it to, oh, the first memory I ever had when I was 18 months old, because what makes me non-binary is not a conversion experience, but my essence. In the same way, the naturalization of slavery created a separate afterlife for the South that did not exist in the North. And that afterlife, like the Mormon afterlife, was profoundly tethered to the present order and necessarily tethered to the present order. It's interesting how you can ask someone a hypothetical imaginative question but the greater function of the question is to attack their imagination. This might be a good good point to uh, ask about ways that we might uh, fight the current transition of our, of our time consciousness. And it is happening across the political spectrum that aside from differences of essence versus conversion, we see a society that overall is committed to the annihilation of the past. And so one of the first things we have to do is we have to recognize that this isn't a left problem with, you know, these new people who think all historians are wrong. The right will always beat us for the number of people who think all historians are wrong. We have to look for our solutions in society as a whole. We can't look for them just on the left. That's not where they're going to well up. The people who are most politically involved are going to be the people who are experiencing the highest level of pressure to adapt their discourse to a hegemonic one so that they can communicate with one another. So how do we simply remember a past and imagine a future? One of the ways I was really blessed growing up as a black person, my first 10 years being raised in a black family, that like many groups that are repeatedly racialized, indigenous people being among them, and who bear the brunt, the greatest brunt, of the North American racial system, there's a love of oral history. There is a love of the story. 
There's a love of the enacted practice. And the way that we retain the idea of the existence of the past is through, through a particular kind of story. You'll notice the best storytellers, you know, and I, I feel I've spent time with some of the best storytellers in the world. Some are famous like Leon Bibb, some are obscure like Jeff Ranger. But what their best stories all have in common is that their stories contain a conversion moment for themselves or someone else. And so they'll tell a story about the past. It actually doesn't even matter if it's true. The best storytellers tend to be very inaccurate people because they're doing something more important, which is they're defending story itself. The structure of story, it doesn't need to be linked to an empirical shared objective world. It simply needs to tell people of a moment in the past where things were one way one day and they were another way another day. And that, that's the linchpin. A, a good storyteller like Ranger or Leon, the story is about how they made a mistake and how they were shown up, how their mistake humiliated them or made them learn or something. We have to remember that the past is something we can all use. You don't have to be a historian to use the past. And we just have to keep remembering to tell stories in a way that remind us of moments when things change. When we learned a new thing and the world looked different, even if it was the same world. So it, it's about an enacted practice. And what you'll find is the kind of people who want to get out of this kind of all now consciousness that lets something like feudalism run for a thousand years, that just bears down on you cognitively and keeps you in your place. The people who want to resist that want stories about the past. They want stories about change over time and they will be attracted to us, whether it's a political community, whether it's a social community, whether it's a religious community. A community that tells those stories will fortify itself with the people who figured out they need those stories. We tend to think that we have to study and know every single detail of storytelling itself as, as dissidents. Uh, that's that to me is hopeful. Well, I think that we're just we're reaching a certain time. A woman named Louise Ortiz uh, gave a paper at the University of Toronto uh, 13 years ago, and I hated the paper, and it was a very bad paper. What that got in the way of was me seeing as these late capitalist dynamics intensify, more and more of our acts of resistance are going to reside in the kind of person we are. Luisa Ortiz's great insight was that it didn't matter whether the Zapatista movement in uh, the Yucatan kept fighting or not, they were always going to be at war with the state of Mexico because Mexico understood simply that because these people were indigenous and because they existed, this was an act of resistance. That resistance had become ontological. To be indigenous and alive, you're at war because the, the state has taken umbrage at your continued existence. That's true of more and more sorts of people. And I think the tellers of stories and those who listen to stories are getting there. They're, they're nearing that list. It's no coincidence that a crucial survival strategy of indigenous people is to place greater emphasis on storytelling mm. than existed in their cultures before. 
some tribe in Papua New Guinea or Australia or something will have this totally unique or very, very localized uh, time consciousness that, uh, you know, is measured by their local space, measured by a river or a valley or some cultures don't have fixed terms like left and right. They have a cardinal direction where, uh, you know, like northeast, south and west, where orientations are, are fixed to the world rather than relative to one's body, right? I saw a YouTube video with a, a, a scientist uh, describing living in one of these cultures and struggling to learn the, the terms of, of, um, of spatial orientation. And at one point she got the epiphany when uh, in her mind somehow uh, she, she saw, um, I guess, what would technically be or historically, anyway, the term um, like an apocalyptic view. She had an overhead view. Uh, in, in her mind, she got a grid overhead view of, of the terrain, and she saw herself as a little red dot and was able to navigate it that way. And then she asked one of the, the village elders, like, this is weird, but this is how I got it. And he said to her, of course, that's how we all get it. This, this is how we see it. And that, that strikes me as, as kind of a, a fairly powerful uh, part of consciousness to have, to be able to have that overhead view and see that. No, I think that's important to recognize that we're not looking at a binary of time consciousness. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at either railway time or all now. I didn't even really talk about the intervening 300 years between those two time consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, my favorite, you know, Papua New Guinea time story is the one where you sequence events based on how far up the valley you are, that, that there is no before or after, there is only below and above. There's a great variety, right? The time consciousness on which railway time is built, the Judean time consciousness was bizarre to people in the Mediterranean world. People in the Mediterranean world believed that time was a circle. It might be concentric circles of different sizes, but it was a circle. The Judeans, the only ones who thought that time was linear, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it would end one day. In an effort to communicate between those two theories of time, the apocalypse is created. The idea of the aerial view of the whole of space-time, so that you can talk about Greek time and Judean time in the same context by rendering it as a two-dimensional aerial view. That's different. And then, of course, we have to remember that, that the all-now consciousness of the Middle Ages was undergirded not by ignorance, but by an incredibly sophisticated theory of time called uh, figural time, in which, if you read descriptions of it, it propounds chaos theory, ta- that human action in time is chaos. It works like the weather or traffic, and that you find self-similar cycles at different scales, so you, you don't have a series of concentric circles. You have sort of a spiral, but a distorted spiral. Or you have something that looks like the Mandelbrot set uh, or the Lorenz attractor. So human beings have an incredible range of ways we can think about time. There w- there's a great range of ways we can experience time. And these map to a greater or lesser degree to different ways we can theorize time. Two people experiencing time the same way can theorize it different ways, and vice versa. But we're so seated in time, and I don't think that's always true. I think that we're seated in time because we live in an era where we sell our labor by the minute, Mm -hmm. where our labor is controlled by the minute. The, The train has arrived at the factory, and now we live in a world 
where we're cutting time into tiny pieces and we're stacking it up. We're doing all kinds of violence to time. In William Blake's Hell on Earth, Ulro, you know, where we see all of these mills and all these giants in chains, these are not the coal-fired factories of 1840. The mills that Blake is showing us are new kinds of grain mills, new kinds of fabric mills, that what concerns Blake is the tiny pieces that human beings, their thoughts and their ideas are being cut into. That Blakey in hell is grinding vision, grinding ideas, grinding thought into a powder with a hand-cranked machine. And the coal didn't need to come for Blake to see that what the dark satanic mills really were. They were things that were going to break space and thought and humanity into tiny pieces. In 1978, science historian James Burke premiered his television show Connections on the BBC. Connections looked at a single seemingly insignificant event or artifact and showed how it was connected to profound shifts uh, throughout history, tracing the object's provenance forwards and backwards through the centuries. In 1985, the day the universe changed followed up Connections, again hosted by Burke, shows that helped to inspire a generation to be curious about the interactions between economics, science, and history. Dan Jennison, our interviewer, and I are very thankful for the contributions of James Burke and wish to dedicate this show to him on behalf of Los Altos Radio Archive.